everybody. Happy Friday. Except it's not Friday. It's Thursday. It is. We don't have an embargo, so we don't have to wait till Friday. That's true. In fact, we're a day late. Yeah, technically we're a day late, but you know, it's not split hairs about that. I'm Trevin McGee, here with Trey Hawk in the Alamo Draft House, um, our favorite place to record the podcast. Really our only place to record the podcast. The Cathedral of Film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and until one of us gets a garage, this is what we're doing. That's true. Uh, We've got one film to talk about this week. We're going to do, we're both going to review Godzilla here in a minute. Um, And then we're going to talk to some fresh, young talent from the KCAI uh, Art Inst- the Kansas City Art Institute. Um, their exhibition is it's today, technically, right? Yeah, it's yeah. this evening. So it's tonight. So if you hear this, drop everything and go. But they uh, were nice enough to come on and talk about their work. It's a combination of animation and live action shorts. Um, at the end of every year, they get to come together and, and, and showcase their work. There's some great uh, young talent on display, and it's a great place to see it at the Alamo really thank them for being so willing to share their, their gigantic awesome movie theaters for something so homegrown and uh, really just appreciated by that's involved and I you know I had I had a little bit of uh, help with curating and uh, I was on the jury uh, this year uh, the faculty will, will switch uh, every semester and I was on the jury this year and I can totally vouch for the the content is usually very very good um and this but but this semester it's 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 yeah it's just really solid um and if people uh are interested in if people are interested in seeing the show i think we do still have some tickets to the 5 p.m uh show so uh just you know i'll have trevin post my uh my email on the on the page and you can go ahead and shoot me an email if you're interested in seeing uh, some short films uh, short animated works from some very talented young filmmakers yeah if you were if you're nice enough to subscribe to the podcast um, please visit scenestealers.com uh, because we will have links aplenty in this podcast absolutely to websites to the work uh, trace email so that you can uh, get in on the on the earlier showing if you still want a ticket um, it's all going to be there, so swing by if, you, uh, if you're nice enough to subscribe. Please go to the website real quick. Um, but let's go ahead and get started on Godzilla. Um, we have not really, talked about this. We have not. So, you know, your love of kaiju films, of Godzilla specifically, is well documented. Sure. Uh, you, you talked about a bunch of the Blu-ray remasters a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Um, and, and then, you know, just from knowing you, I know that they're, they're, they play a big part um, in your sort of... Daily life. Daily life. Yeah. <laughs> you, you pray to the small monster every morning. Like sure, sure, yeah. But, you know, you, you love the films. I, uh, I don't have the same level of appreciation that you do, but I definitely do love the original, um, the Japanese Gojira. You know, I, I love that film. Um, and... I love the sort of genre that, that it kind of spawned um, where you saw it in anime and in other places where they were able to kind of explore what's that mean and, and all the sort of subgenres sure. that came from that. You know, giant robots, mecha, manga, you know, things like that that really, really sprung from it. Um, this film is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's sort of the official kind of reboot or, or bringing Godzilla into the 21st century. Um, and then two, it's the first big budget movie that this independent director Gareth Edwards has gotten, gotten to make. Sure. And he, he made a fantastic little indie movie with Scoot McNary called uh, Monsters yeah. a few years ago and it's on Netflix streaming if you haven't had a chance to watch it. I highly recommend it. It's, it's 90 minutes long. It won't be wasted. Um, it's a really interesting take on the kaiju genre yeah, too. And, and monster films and, and just, the, I mean... If you don't know the sort of behind-the-scenes story of how he made it, it's still a good film. But then when mm-hmm. you realize, you know, what he did and how he basically made the whole thing himself, um, it's it's even cooler to yeah. realize because it doesn't look good, you know. Like yeah. everyone loved when um, Robert Rodriguez did El Mariachi. Can you believe it? Can you believe I did this? Did all of it? And, you know, it cost this much money. Like, yeah, it looks like. You look at it and you think, oh, this kid probably had, you know. Yeah, a couple million dollars and a small crew, and yeah, two actors and a 
laptop. Yeah. And it's just kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, so to see, I always like when directors I like, we've talked about James Gunn last week, but when directors I like that had to kind of start uh, at the bottom or start shoestring, and then then they're given the the, you know, key, the keys to a kingdom or you know the reins to a major franchise or something like that, because they have to learn the ropes on no money, and one thing that doesn't cost any money, um, but is infinitely value, valuable is a good script sure good storytelling you know like like having a budget makes you focus on the things that matter um, and so this is another one of those examples that the new Godzilla is because it looks like it cost a billion dollars like right it is it is phenomenally uh, shot uh, we saw it we got to see it in IMAX um, um, I actually think it was a totally worthwhile uh, IMAX experience. The 3D didn't really resonate. I, I hardly noticed it, honestly, yeah. except for when it got fuzzy sometimes. Yeah. But, it may have reinforced some of the scale yeah. of it, and, and the scale is handled very scale effectively. Yeah. yeah. But, but as, a, as an experience, um, to see this guy that went from nothing to this major franchise, like they totally handled it off to the new person. I, sure. I thought it came through very well. Um, as a film, not as a kaiju film, but as just a film, uh, as a summer movie, uh, big budget kind of action flick. I think it works exceedingly well in a <laughs> lot of ways. Um, I do not. I, I don't want to get into because because they've done such a good job of shielding us from a lot of the script and sure. the, the trailers and stuff. Even though it looks like there's a lot going on, like they've done a pretty good job of keeping some major plot points totally. Absolutely. And I, I want to honor that. Um, even though the embargo's lifted. But I will say that um, as a giant monster movie, it works really well. As a human drama kind of Aaron Taylor Johnson trying to get back to his family movie, doesn't work very well at all. Sure. Um, that's my biggest complaint about it. I think that it's, I think in terms of the, the pacing of the film, the origin story that they come up with for Godzilla, the they take it. They go a different route. You know, there, there are a bunch of different kind of pillars in kaiju films, and you, Trey knows this better than I do. So I'm basically paraphrasing things he's told me. But usually, a giant monster is the result of uh, the folly of man. Some way, either they polluted the environment. And this is nature. Sure. You know, kind of striking back, or you know, the original Go- Gojira was a commentary on nuclear weapons and, and sort of what the fall, you know, no pun intended, but what the fallout was from Absolutely. the first nuclear attack. In, in fact, it's very specific in, in the 1954 Gojira because um, what they what they figure out Godzilla was is that a, a vestigial dinosaur right. uh, had somehow survived on the Bikini Islands for you know the the hundreds of thousands of years that since dinosaurs had roamed the earth that 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 because of sort of a geographic and and weather anomaly that this dinosaur in this group of dinosaurs had lived on the bikini islands and so when the u.s was doing its testing there it is the u.s detonation of the uh, atomic weapons, the nuclear weapons in the Bikini Atoll um, that caused Godzilla. So all of a sudden, it's what people think of as just a silly throwaway monster movie, or some people think of it. I think those in the know don't think of it that way and see it as much more sort of fundamental uh, to the sort of history of cinema than than just a silly throwaway uh, creature feature. But... um, what what is being discussed is a creature that is not only created by humans because that's ultimately kind of what is discussed in the overall allegory but a creature that is very specifically the fault of the US nuclear ambitions right. that then starts to that then becomes this this vestigial dinosaur becomes Godzilla because it's been irradiated and then attacks Japan so it is a direct link between the U.S. nuclear ambitions and the destruction of the Japanese islands by Godzilla. So 
So, I mean, the allegory, and I guess that's really what I was missing from this latest iteration. You were dissatisfied by the getting, you know, the the getting home story of the... They try and tell a human story and half of it works out. That really, it's just Aaron Taylor Johnson's really stiff. Sure, sure. And um, there wasn't enough time spent kind of establishing that familial bond and relationship it didn't really work very well and so the 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 relationship that i was actually okay with was the father son relationship yeah, I, thought I thought that was very effective yeah, um, and i did some interesting stuff with yeah that too like you know cranston had some scene chewing to do for sure sure but there was definitely there were definitely some moments where they kind of stepped back and just let her yeah the husband act. the husband and wife story is just not as compelling yeah. it's just not and it's a shame because Elizabeth Olsen's kind of wasted she doesn't really get to do yeah. much except to look at stuff and cry yeah you know? that's true and she's there to react she's, she's just a walking reaction <clears throat> shot which is difficult um, but, but I wanted I, I think that instead of having or trying to develop that story that yeah. wasn't very wasn't as successful I really would have liked to have seen uh, a little bit heavier allegory, a little bit heavier theatrics, yeah. um, because it's one of the things that I think is so fundamental to kaiju um, that that these these monsters mean something. Now, most of the time, what they mean is complex is is very very complex, and I think that's hinted at, but it's it's. It's not even. I wouldn't even say that it's subtle. It's. I. I feel like it's a real move away from the heavy allegory of past kaiju. It is definitely that, but at the same time, I think it's still true to um, what Godzilla became in those in those Tojo films as they carried on. I mean, as sure. as the sequels and then the knockoffs kind of build the genre, um, they they start to justify where these giant creatures are coming from in different ways. Sometimes they're religious avatars that return to Earth to, sure. to right wrongs sure. or because people have prayed for them to come back. Other times they're aliens. Other times they're, you know, like there are a lot of different allegories that you can, you can look into, you know, foreign threats or uh, the sort of hand of God or, you know, or even just God itself. Um, you know, the way that, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but the way that Godzilla is explained isn't that far off from how he's addressed in, in the subsequent films, not necessarily the original, but he is sort of a yeah. protector. He's an Earth, he's kind of an Earthborn protector. Yeah, you know, they acknowledge that in a very, but a very ambivalent, a, a, but a very ambivalent one. Right. Um, and and most of the time, it's not so much protector in the previous films. Yeah. So not talking about about this one, but in in previous films, in this film he's basically a. 500 foot white blood cell like he's yeah entirely just an earth def- earthborn defense right right mechanism you know um and and to me that is something i i have to say that's something of a disappointment um that i'm i much prefer thinking of him as as animal defending territory yeah. so it's not so much like I am protecting the earth it's just like no you don't belong here right. you know uh, because that's one of the things that again being sort of deeply embedded in the Godzilla world one of my favorite monsters is Mothra mm-hmm. um, Mosara for those of you who are arrogant kaiju assholes you like the twins yeah it's the twins that do it it's, it's just the twins. Weird twins no uh, the the thing about mothra that i find so fascinating is that is that mothra is not for or against humans she is solely here as protector of the earth mm-hmm. um so sometimes she is aligned with humanity because humanity is is beneficial to the earth at times other times, she's totally in, an ad, in, in opposition to humanity. And I, right. I find that really fascinating. Um, it allows for a character, a, a large monster character, to be just in ways that are not dictated by humankind. Um, Godzilla doesn't really care about humanity. In, in, again, kind of steering clear of discussing this film specifically, but... But Godzilla doesn't really care about humanity. Either way, 
He doesn't care. Like, right. he just sees another monster on his turf, and he wants that other monster to not exist. Yeah. And that's kind of the extent of it. Um, and so, you know, in the only times that there were these sort of classic aligned battles, you know, where, you know, was when a bigger and badder monster that really was never earthbound, uh, often uh, King Ghidorah, uh, comes down, then all of a sudden Mothra and Godzilla could be on the yeah, same side. Team up. Right. So it was Battle Royale. Um, so anyway, but but I think one of the things I, I, I missed, and, and I am ambivalent a little bit about the origin of Godzilla in this, uh, in this film, that, that I think there's something really interesting in the complexity of Godzilla's original origin in the 1954 which which actually was reiterated in in one of the new uh, blu-ray releases which is Godzilla versus Destroyer um, but in the original humans caused Godzilla to exist mm-hmm. Godzilla comes to destroy humanity but develops this sense of defending his own turf so we must then resolve oh crap we made this thing that can destroy us but there are times where this thing that can totally destroy us is the only thing that can defend us too and that's a nuance that does not exist in this new film no and I, I, I think that level of complexity that level of complex allegory of both you know, uh, basically being able to attach, you know, fear of nuclear annihilation to these monsters, fear of overpopulation, fear of pollution, fear of an invading force, because that's exactly what King Ghidorah is always, because King Ghidorah is always controlled by an outside alien force. Um, so he's always the alien monster. He is not an earthbound. So he's like Venusians or yeah. from people from Neptune. Um, come come here and, and bring King Ghidorah. Um, so, so, you know, whatever fear you're attributing to it to, and it's not just that. It's also, you know, like Godzilla is fear of nuclear annihilation, but it's also fear of just what we can do to each other. Right. And then it's also our, our ticket to, you know, it's also what defends us. So it is the same sort of awkward, uh, complex relationship that we may have to our own nuclear arsenal. Um, and, and I think that, that the lack of allegory, to some small extent, starts to, starts to pull at the loose threads and pick away at what has been built now over 60 years into a genre unto itself. And, and so, you know, even in the Gamera films, uh, even in the Gamera films, some Western some Western kaiju's already kind of did that, but they're usually kind of asides, and they're very Western. You know, right. it's very simple. And I think that's one of the things that I think bugs me about this is that we need to have sort of a clear understanding of what this thing is, good or bad. And we need to walk out feeling like that complication is fully resolved in our head. Right. It's very difficult for us to walk out and think and mourn the death of Godzilla or whatever. Um, like in the original 1954. That's why it was re-edited when it was sent to the States. One, to tone down the fact that Godzilla is our fault. Right. Um, and two, to and make it very... Burr. Yeah, and, and who makes it very clear that at the end, I am sad that the scientist died killing Godzilla, but what an incredible sacrifice. Instead of the elegy being both for the scientist and for Godzilla, because it wasn't Godzilla's fault that he even existed. Right. And I think that level of complexity is, is almost entirely devoid from summer blockbusters. You know, and, and and it wouldn't be hard to embed that. Um, you know, uh, it wouldn't be hard to embed that and just kind of sneak it in for those who really just want kind of classic kaiju genre. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's my take on so, it. So that's, I mean, those are great examples. 
um, of things that didn't work for you? Like what did work for you? Um, I, I think the I think the design of Godzilla. I was I was a little bit on the fence about the design of the other monsters. Yeah. Um, I thought they were okay. Right. I thought they were okay, but they were sort of they were sort of a. a a, a kind of contemporary sort of nondescript monster thing. Yeah, it was very, it was very, I was about to say, like, I mean, it, very unique in how bland it was. Yeah, you know? like yeah. It was just, it it was just like somebody yeah. said, hey, they got to have these things, and it looks like this. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and since they've got such an art arsenal of classic Godzilla adversaries, yeah. I really don't know why they wouldn't have just picked one. Yeah. Um, even like, I mean, it's like, fine, you don't want to have any of the big guns. You don't want to have Mothra. Mothra is very complex and difficult to deal with. I don't think Mothra will ever play to an American audience within this new genre unless she is just seen as a total good guy. Right. Um, but but somebody like a Rodan. Yeah. You've got a flying creature. Um, it could totally work. Why not? Why, why, is, why isn't this creature Rodan? Um, you know, uh, or or even like a total side character, like a Gigantosaurus, you know, yeah. which can fly and go in the sea and go on land, you know. Something along those lines where you've got a throwaway side character. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to do a Hetera or a Gigan or, you know, yeah. whatever. But but you can, you know, you can choose a character and then just modernize it and, yeah. and bring it in and why not? I, I loved um, every time it's a giant monster movie. It's incredible. I loved every every chance that Gareth Edwards gets to show scale. He takes, yep. and as a result, it looks awesome. Like every time you're given the opportunity to see how big it is, or how big Godzilla is, or how like the fact that he's so large has immediate environmental consequences. And so when he makes <coughs> his sort of first landfall, it's essentially a tsunami. Like, yeah. When he comes out of the water, because it displaces that much of the ocean when he moves, he essentially causes land-bound, you know, earth tidal waves every time. Yeah. And so they don't shy away from that. And I I loved, you know, it's an easy horse to whip, but we go to wanton destruction a lot in Hollywood movies and how easy it is to kind of be disconnected and not really care about it and dissociate from it. great examples are you know any of the transformers movies man of steel um uh dark knight rises i mean there are plenty of 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 examples where they're just like there's a bomb and it blows up and we don't care because it's it's cg and we know it's cg and we're not invested in these polygons that get animated to look destroyed but he takes opportunity to show a very human reaction to these outlandish events and creatures. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons, because I, I absolutely agree. The scale and the destruction is really impactful. Really impactful. And, and there are a couple of reasons why. You know, there are a couple like of very specific reasons. One, his choice of camera angles, that yeah. every single shot is motivated. Even if it doesn't come in a POV, it's motivated by the human characters. We are seeing these shots from angles and vantage points that humans could get to. Rooftops, yeah. out of windows, on the street level, yeah, I love that when type they incorporate of thing. The media too. When they yeah. show when cuz they when they show how the media would cover such a thing, that's incredible yeah. at different times. You know, yeah. it's not it, and it's great because it doesn't slow down and become this like stupid meta um uh, meta sort of meditation on what is you know the media doing everything but you know it uses it like it would you know headline mm-hmm. news would put cameras on a giant monster fight in an airport oh you of know, course like that would yeah, happen yeah. every and single 24 hour news station would be covering nothing but monsters destroying yeah, Las so Vegas when they show it to you, you're like wow that's actually yeah that's that's, that's what it would look like yeah, yeah that's really fascinating and, and I think showing it to us in a perspective like the news media that that shows us the way we consume our news every yeah. day. I think it's very impactful. Yeah. And then another thing that I very much enjoyed about it was while Godzilla or his uh, counterparts are not man-made, the conflict that takes the last third of the film is entirely man-made. 
Yeah. And I loved that. I loved yeah. that if we had just like, if humankind had just kind of stayed out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it, this could have all been over. It would have sorted itself out. Right. But they just make it infinitely worse for themselves because yeah. they keep trying to intervene. And that's a great, I mean, like Ken Watanabe's character touches on it, but that's a great, while it is missing some of the, the metaphor and allegory that you've mentioned and that sure. I've, I've touched on, I did like the overall theme of letting nature take its course. Right. And that there is a natural balance to things. Yeah. And I, I liked that they redefined Godzilla in that context. Sure. That he's not a man-made thing, that he is he is a natural defense system. Sure. And it, you just get out of his way and let him do what he was, you know, created to do. Yeah. And hopefully it doesn't happen on land you know yeah, <laughs> like yeah. hopefully it happens out at sea uh, and, and to be honest it's like there are plenty of like once godzilla gets integrated you know you know once you're into the the 60s and 70s godzilla films right. um you know and especially once you're into the 90s godzilla films the best you can hope for is that the fight doesn't happen in a city yeah you know um so like uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a pretty um, so like Godzilla versus Mothra Battle for the Earth, which is one of uh, the films in the '90s. Um, like it takes place in Osaka, yeah. You know, and and they just wreck everything. But in Godzilla versus Destroyer, the only way the humans can help mm-hmm. is making sure that like corralling them just enough right. so that the battle doesn't take place in a populated area. And, and I think that that's, you know, I, I do see that. And I do see that as a shift away from allegory, the allegory being attached to the monster right. itself. And instead, but still showing the sort of ineptitude of sort of the human interaction, yeah. that you guys cannot help here. Right. Just get out of the way. Yeah. Um, and I did find that very compelling. The one thing I was missing in the monster fight scene. I loved his reveal, by the way. Oh, when yeah, you first yeah. see yeah. Godzilla for real, that they feel yeah. that beautifully. I thought that was... Yeah, and, and, and there, there are plenty of little, like, nudges uh, to people who are familiar with mm-hmm. the Godzilla world, um, powers and attributes that kind of show up, yep. that, that uh, if you're in the know you'll start peeing your pants 30 seconds before anybody else. You get all of his sign- he he pulls out all of his signature moves. Yeah. And, and the way the way they build to it. Like, yeah. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah. yeah um but you know one of the things that I was missing which is a sort of classic cinematic technique imply or uh, employed in almost every kaiju and that's the shot where we cut to a wide it's a profile shot of the two monsters facing each other down mm-hmm. and the camera is basically set at monster eye level yeah and then they fight for a minute or two and there was one moment where he cuts to it and i'm like this is the this is where he's going to do it and he almost immediately cut away and i was like you don't have to give me like 15 minutes of it but give me like 30 seconds to a minute where i can be like that's classic kaiju. Yeah. You know, uh, there's no reason to not to not embed a visual homage to where all of this com- where all of this came from. It doesn't waste your time. It doesn't interrupt flow of story. It c- you could place it in such a way that it wouldn't in- interrupt your pacing. Um, you think it would be counter to how the rest of the film was done from human perspective, though? They give me one, and it's it's actually shot. You can see the edge of the roof that we're standing. Oh. On. So it's like, I mean, just put a handful of people there and then push the camera past them and let me see it. Right. Let me have that moment. You wanted your, you wanted your money it, shot. It doesn't, it. It, like I said, it doesn't have to be a significant period of time. In fact, there are some classic kaijus where, where the fight will, Terra Mechagodzilla is a perfect example, and I think that fight goes on for 10 or 15 minutes. Like to where you really about halfway through checking your watch. Mm-hmm. Like, are you kidding me? Um, it's like a monster wrestling match. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I don't need that. Um, even though I believe me, Terra Mecha Godzilla, one of my all-time favorites, and I will watch that. You know, I could watch that right now. After we, if, uh, in fact, I want to finish this podcast so we can get out of here and I can go watch that. But 
I'm just saying it's like give me 30 to 45 seconds right. where I get this classic cinematic technique applied in a way that you've integrated it and totally could integrate it into your sort of new vision so that I see the baton pass, right. you know, the visual baton pass. Um, it's funny because I'm nitpicking this film, you know, and there are a number of things like the musical score wasn't present because Toho wouldn't allow them to yeah. have have the rights to it. Um, so an homage to the musical score would have been awesome. They couldn't get it. They actually have already talked about it, and they, they could not get it. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, this one the little that is in there though is it's it's it's, it's close. It's about as close yeah. as they can get without getting. It sued. has the feel yeah. of an old old school orchestral Especially score. Like they allude to it in that first trailer where they do the, the yeah. halo jump. Yeah. But when that music comes on, it really does feel. Um, almost like a religious experience. Like yeah. It really does feel like you're they're they're about to embark on something that is otherworldly. You yeah. Know? That 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 scene they like I said, you know, it's it's in the te- it's in the trailer, but the the version of it that's in the film is incredible. Yeah. Like the Halo jump. That's another thing I'd say about the film that I loved very much was it's beautifully shot. Yeah. The, the it looks great. It looks great. My God. Like, some of the shots in that thing just blew my mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's funny because I'm nitpicking it. Mm-hmm. I'm totally nitpicking it. Yeah. I understand that. And it's like, I would have liked to have seen some of the tenants held closer. Sure. So that I could kind of let go and, and see this sort of real baton pass or this move forward and into the future. I would have liked to have seen a step somewhere in between. Um, and not for it to be, not that it's a crazy drastic break, but if you're, you know, again, if you are this familiar with the tenets of kaiju, it, it, it's a significant step. Yeah. And I would have liked to have seen maybe a step in between that, that paid real tribute to the past, but then also was pushing us forward into the potential for this genre moving into the future. Um, but again, I think this is a film that watching it a second or even a third time, I will become more forgiving of it, of those types of things, and will embrace what it does really well, which it looks like monsters are wrecking San Francisco. Um, I was I was saying last night to somebody, it's it's some of the best CG I've ever seen. I think it might be the best yeah, CG I've ever seen. Yeah. Like it, it genuinely looks real yeah. at times. Like the, the stuff on the on the San Francisco bridge. Like, yeah. All of that stuff looks genuinely real. Like it looks, yeah. it doesn't. I'm glad that CG has finally evolved to the point that we can say, like, oh yeah, it's it's getting photorealistic because it, it at times it is like, wow, this that looks real. This could pass. Yeah, this passes the the visual, you know, reptile brain test where you just kind of instinctively right. know whether something's real or not. Right. It's getting really close. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I'm, I'm giving it a. Uh, solid rock fist up. Um, the only reason I'm not giving it uh, a rock fist way up is because the, uh, the, uh, the the human story is a little lacking and they spend a little more time on it than I would have sure. liked them to. Um, it's But the problem is like it's all there out of necessity so it really just means it's kind of it, it, it's just kind of a lukewarm execution. Yeah. yeah. It's well shot. It's just not very well acted or very compelling. There's not a lot that happens. Yeah. We spend so much time with it. That's my biggest complaint. And I didn't need, like, monsters fighting for two hours. But I definitely... But you wouldn't have said no to monsters? I wouldn't have said monsters. no to it. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have said no to it. But yeah. I, I definitely... that That's my biggest hang-up is just the human elements are just kind of so-so. And... Anytime they deal with the monsters, anytime they discuss the origin or nature or sure. behavior or how they want to deal with it, I thought those scenes were really compelling when they're coming up with ways to fight them and trying to figure out, like, how do we respond to this? What do we do? You know, anytime there's a table full of bureaucrats arguing over how to handle a crisis, yeah. I think that's ripe for comparison and for, for allegory toward anything, whether it's a natural disaster or a maybe a war that we shouldn't be involved in or right. whatever. Um, and they handled those scenes very well where it wasn't wishy-washy. It wasn't obvious um, allegory towards something else. Um, but it still had this very real feeling to it. Like right. They, 
you know, how do we handle this? How do we handle this crazy disaster that's been thrown our way? Yeah, um, yeah. And really just loved the creature design and the way that they dealt with him, the way they tease out his existence, the way that they... Every, everything that it delivered on, it delivered on big. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a little more ambivalent about it. Uh, I could see this. I'm going to give it a minor rock fist up. I could see that over time growing into kind of a, a solid rock fist up. Um, I, I agree with you. I think the human element, I would have liked to have seen at least subtle allegory. Again, th- there, I think there were opportunities to kind of look to the past while moving into the future that were missed. I think this is going to be a massive deal um, uh, this summer. I think I this is, yeah, I, really I, do. I do too. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with the, the kids from KCAI. Yeah, Kiddos, absolutely. The kids, the youngsters. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back. Um, today, on this podcast, we have some special guests. And this one actually means quite a bit to me because they are current and former students that I have had at KCAI. And they're students whose work is featured in the upcoming KCAI Film Plus Animation Showcase at Alamo Draft House. And we've invited them here to talk a little bit about their work, talk a little bit about animation and film at KCAI and kind of looking into the future as some of them are graduating and some of them are continuing uh, their tenure at KCAI. Um, But just as kind of way of introduction, we've got Aaron Kennedy, who is a senior in animation and getting ready to graduate. We've got Cody Hunt, who is a senior in film at KCAI. We've got Molly Garrett, who is a junior in animation. (laughs) And then we've got Joey Tuzzolino, who is a sophomore. Um, You know, I just think of you as more mature than that. So, but he is still a sophomore in film uh, and is is here to talk to us also. (laughs) <laughs> Nods won't work, Joey. You gotta. I, I know you're usually a nonverbal communicator. We do a lot of sight gags. We, we do, yeah, we do do a ton of sight gags on the radio, and they work very well. But you gotta the verbal communication up it. Um, so you know, I think that what I what I would like to do is start off with just kind of a rundown of the films that you've got in the upcoming showcase. Maybe give us a taste of it, you know. Uh, it doesn't have to be a full synopsis, but if it can be, you know, the kernel of the idea or something like that. Um, uh, because I know that we've got a range of, of films here from experimental animation to narrative film to kind of experimental narrative. So, um, Joe, you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I have a film in the show. It's entitled Porterhouse. And uh, it's a five-minute short narrative film that uh, the base of the story is a man named Jerry who uh, has a obsession with steak. So that's in the show. <laughs> it's a good one for the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. I, I already it's relate a, to Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> Like I know him. Yeah, he has an obsession and a problem with steak. Yeah, even better. Um. Yeah. So I have a film 
in the show called Phantasmagoria, and it is a collaboration with two fiber students at KCAI. Um, it's an experimental stop motion. We actually used a real human instead of a puppet, um, which means there are some kind of interesting um, filmmaking processes. Um, so it's about uh, six minutes long, and um, yeah, it was a whole year-long process, so I'm happy it's done. <laughs> <laughs> And weren't you uh, one of the people in it, or don't you make an appearance? Yeah, I was. Um, the rationale was that because I'm an animator, I would be the best at acting animating. Um, and when we first like decided to do this, our we, we thought, oh, we won't make a puppet. That will make it so much easier. And we didn't think about the fact that to do like a 30-second, not even, like a 20-second animated clip, I would have to be in the same position for like five hours. So it was like... It was weird and, like, painful, but it was a cool process to, like, learn about, I guess. And it sounds like you're going to stick to this from now on. Every film I am you make, you <laughs> never doing this to... again, <laughs> but I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Cody, what about you? And the film I have in the, in the show is Charles. It's an 18-minute um, character study film, and I guess it's kind of a turn uh, in my work to more about my own inspiration and experiences that I've had throughout my life and I guess the idea that uh, started uh, the, the film was uh, when I was younger my uh, mother got into like a, a critical uh, drunk driving accident and I mean, growing up her repeated me never to uh, drink and drive and coming to college and um, like the scenario of me actually doing the same thing that she did kind of sparked like the idea for the film and uh and there was a period uh while I was writing the, the script I hadn't been at home uh for a while uh, for like almost a year and so it was like combining all these life experiences that I'm, that I'm kind of going through uh and I, it's about a it's a film about like uh, how do you define yourself and like living with guilt and, and it's just Combining all these life ex own life experiences and how one defines herself. Awesome. Erin, what about you? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I have a three-minute animation in the festival. Well, I guess, is it a festival or just a screening? Uh, it's a curated exhibition. All right. All right. Yeah. I have a short in the curated exhibition called The Junkard, and it started with this... It's weird, the film kind of mimics my process in making it, where it's like just a simple idea kind of being over-explored and getting to the point of sensory overload. I don't know, it's very experimental, and i rather people just sort of have their own take on... I don't know, all the interpretations I've gotten from people that have seen it have been more entertaining than what I originally had, so <laughs> it's always better to hear them. <laughs> So Cody kind of gave us sort of the kernel of where his film kind of emerged from. For you, Aaron, where where did what what kind of spawned? What was at the core of of this film? Um, at the core, I guess I've always just sort of been interested by a lot of my claymations have been about what the what the character does to themselves or what the character sets up for themselves and sort of the film is a chance for me to see their experience through their choices like in the junkard he deliberately places this idea into his head that causes this i don't know it gets really quick and fast and there's it's a bit meditative but at the end not it's sort of just like what what can we put ourselves through as humans what can we set up and like can we escape what we've done to ourselves a little bit? <laughs> and Molly, yours was a collaboration between three artists. So where, like, did did one of you have an idea, or you, did you were you all just chatting one day and decide, hey, this would be interesting or fun or fruitful or whatever? Where did, like, again, where did the kernel, where did the idea kind of emerge from, and how... How did it progress from that stage? My two collaborators, Emily Kenyon and Anna Carr, um, both in the fibers department, and Emily has always had this interest in making stop motion sets and puppets, and I've always had an interest in stop motion, and we're good friends, so it just kind of seemed like too good of an opportunity to not 
take advantage of. Um, and so we all three, we co-directed it. Um, all of our individual studio practices deal with some similar themes and ideas. So coming together on ideas wasn't hard for us. Um, but I do think that each of us have a slightly different take on the film. It um, uh, has a lot to do with uh, the, visu the visual cues of it and symbolic um, like materials. So I think it's easy... It's not a linear narrative at all, so it's easy for us to all kind of like apply our own um, like core concepts onto the film mm -hmm. um, in that way, which is an interesting way to work, I think, having three co-directors instead of just like one director and then people working on that idea. And, and what are some of the themes, just because, you know, most of the people who will be listening to this won't really know your past work or anything mm -hmm. like that. But what are some of the themes that you find kind of reoccurring in your work that may show up in Phantasmagoria? Yeah, so I think there's, um, I'm dealing um, a lot with, like, um, femininity and the domestic space, and then also compartmentalizing mental space. Um, also how that, how a mentality can be reflected into a domestic setting and kind of um, encapsulated in that. Um, and so Emily and Hannah are working with somewhat similar ideas, um, and I think through that is kind of how I would describe it. But I'm always interested, kind of like Aaron was saying, about um, how people are interpreting certain things, certain colors we used in the film I've gotten some good feedback on. So, How do you manage, um, like, how do you maintain a creative vision with three or two other directors? Like, how do you, how do you keep your, your voice, you know, present when you have two other people who are also creative and, and feeding into that same process? Um, I think I think there was definitely a balance. I mean, like, I'm used to working by myself as an animator, so a lot of times, I guess, in the school setting. So um, it was kind of about learning where to take a step back and where to take a step forward. I think I really put my foot down on some of the um, animation and editing decisions, and then with a lot of the art direction, I was like, this is you guys. You guys are more educated on some of these things and I want your voice to be heard in this part so it was definitely like learning that balance and like understanding we're all co-directing and um, just that way of working where there's no we're not really responding to anyone it's like very much all um, what I did learn though is that way of working is a lot slower when you're constantly checking in with people yeah, can you? Because you can't make any sort of executive decisions. Yeah. Right. Because mm -hmm. if you do, then the next day people are mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was always like calling and being like, "So I think I want this," and oh, we're good. Okay, like moving forward now. So. <laughs> and Joey, I've heard the story about the background of yours, but I just I find it really fascinating, and I know that a number of people will kind of be interested. Where did the core of your story, the story about this man obsessed with steaks, which is both totally accurate and kind of misleading as far as your film is concerned, um, but where, where did the core of that that idea come from? Yeah, um, I used to be a waiter at a steakhouse, so um, I ended up writing this story from an experience I had with the customer who actually got to play the lead actor of the f character in the film and uh, most of the story is true but I kind of wrote around the fact that I was able to so um, it was just kind of a strange experience to uh, get the opportunity to make just idea into a film with the person that the idea came from was he aware did he know that he yeah I had I was I was really worried about um, well in the film there's implied heavily implied marital troubles mm -hmm. with the main actor and uh, his name is Jerry in the film with, so with Jerry and I was pretty afraid to tell him that I wrote that he has trouble with marital, like his marriage, based off of the fact that I think he did You're right. in real life. <laughs> so I kind of had to just like put it on the table, and he was like he was he was down to help me with my project and disregard his personal life, which was very 
beneficial for me. Yeah, it's was, cool of him. Yeah. <laughs> was yeah. he interested in the project? I oh mean, yeah, he yeah. was. He was really interested, which is just insanely surprising to me, and definitely helpful to know that there's people that you don't even know who would be interested in what you do. Well, and it's it's just really fascinating because he actually the the actor not actor um, actually does a really great job. Um, I think part of that is you're directing him and kind of explaining, but but there is something kind of really wonderful about his performance too. He does a really great job. So yeah, you know, if whatever he does doesn't work out, maybe he's got a long and storied career in acting. Just yeah. started because you wrote a wrote a film based on him. <laughs> I think he's a he's a pretty good lawyer. Okay. So. Well, then maybe he wants to stick with that. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. He can Fine. do both. He could have a midlife crisis. <laughs> you never know. For the seniors, are there any... What are, what are your plans for the films? Have you been submitting to festivals? Have you been exploring, kind of promoting your film, other places? Anything like that? I'm, I've been looking at festivals. I kind of took the week away. Just to sort of like get a fresh look at the film, but um, I'm going to submit it to a couple of festivals, and uh, hopefully, I'm going to New York over the summer, so I'm going to see where I can, what I can do with it there. Sure. sure. <laughs> Aaron uh, Trevin has yeah. a uh, an internship with Bill Plimpton. Yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome! Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So she'll be off to New York. Did you get to summer. hang out with him when he was here for? Yeah. Oh, man, that's yeah. awesome. He, he's so awesome. Uh, well, right now I'm also uh, working on a, well, I just finished a little promotional film for the Black Archives, and I'm also working on a Studio Zinc uh, promotional film. Uh, so I kind of stepped away from the, the film for a little bit, but yeah, I, I do uh, I do plan on submitting to festivals cool. in the next coming weeks. And Molly, you worked with two seniors, so I mean, I guess this this question is appropriate for you um, also. Do you know what the promotion of the film is and and if it's going out to festivals, if there's interest in it or anything like that? Of course. Uh, it was Emily's senior thesis, so um, I think we're going to try to do that. We actually had a weird experience the other day. Someone wanted to buy the film just for their private collection, so which I didn't even consider, but was an honor. Did they that. make you a good offer? Um, yeah, yeah, they did, and it was just that they had a monitor, and they like kind of collect that kind of stuff for their house. Nice. I was like, cool. <laughs> I never yeah, expected yeah. that. Uh, you should drop the contract and say, hey, as long as we can submit it to festivals and we'll say that it's in your private collection. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Trevin's a big collector of I'm films. I'm a big, yeah. 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 Was it Trevin? Did Trevin do that? It was not Trevin. Yeah. <laughs> that you know of. I yeah. use a lot of third-party third party buyers. Yeah, absolutely. Profile, though. This is the second time that we'll have done an end-of-semester uh, curated uh, showcase at the Alamo. Um, I don't know, I, I can't remember who was in it last semester, or if any of you were in it this uh, last semester. Obviously, all of you are in it this semester. Um, but, you know, whether you were just in attendance last semester or whether you're, you, this is going to be your kind of first time around, what does... What can somebody expect, do you think, when they come to see the program? You know that all four of you are in, but you've also heard that there are other... Because I think there are 20 films total. Wow. Um, 20 short films and animations. It's... It's, uh, it's a combination of both. Yeah, it's a combination of both. Um, I think the entire program runs just under two hours. Uh, there will be a 10-minute inter- intermission. Um, and and the the live action is intermixed with the the animation, so you'll get a blend throughout the evening uh, if you come check it out. Um, but what is what do you think? Uh, you know, how would you tell people who are interested in coming to something like this what to expect? Both you know, both in terms of your own work, but also in terms of the work that's being presented that night. Well, I'm really excited about 
and a lot of work across all the grades too so I think there's going to be a good representation of what our departments are about and the work coming out of there. What, what I think is great about this uh, exhibition is combining both digital film and uh, animation in the past. Um, the, the show, uh, film and uh, animation had their separate shows at uh, KCAI and it kind of conflicted with all the other shows going on. So I think um, it having its own show and combining film and animation uh, is really great for both departments. And they're like on the, just because they're sort of intermixed and it's not like an animation pre-show before a film series, it's a very equal playing ground for both departments too, which I really respect because last, sem- last semester that show... I really love the sort of balance that happened, and I was proud of all of the work that was shown because it wasn't just the seniors, it was the sophomores, it was the juniors. It was sort of the best of the school being shown, and it really just it made the night better knowing that you had it wasn't just guaranteed. It was a juried process, which I feel like sometimes doesn't happen enough considering school events, but since this is outside of the school but a part of the school, it kind of... I don't know. You have to take the initiative. You, you don't just get in. <laughs> I think it's great, too, um, to see something you work on a screen like the Apple. You know, this is like a great space. And then I'll submit to... stuff. I just want to see that bit because I'm like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> what about the dialogue? Okay, so, so we all know that it's a department made up of photography, digital film, animation, and digital media, which includes game design and sort of experimental media and things like that. But what, what about the dialogue? Because it, it's, it's a show that's blended between live action, live action films and animation. What about that dialogue between the two is important to you all as far as being able to sit down and watch it or, or the conversation that may happen across these different segments of the department? What do you, I mean, how has that impacted the work that you've done or, or what are you looking forward to as far as the development of that dialogue? What has it meant to you in the past? That kind of stuff. I guess for me, since like last year was the first year it happened, it was sort of interesting since it was right at the beginning of my senior year, right before I'm about to graduate, but I've always kept updated with what film has been doing and photo, but to actually just like be able to have a show with them changes the dynamic so much because it opens up this sort of bridge between two separate studios. We're the same department now, but we're on campus. We're you know studios apart, so it's hard to like. At least we're we have a conversation afterwards, not during production, but to have that afterwards and just to talk about the films and what resources we used, and I think it's going to help promote a lot more crossover between animation and film, which I feel should have been. I think it's a missed opportunity at this school that there isn't more of that turnover. So I'm glad to see like films like Molly's getting made where it's like asking more di- different departments to sort of merge and sort of take advantage of what each other knows. We had um, uh, Brandon Sankey and Sarah Perkins that were from the digital film department where uh, collaborators on this film as well and uh, some of our cin- cinematography for the intro scene which was live action. So I think just this um, like communication that's happening between the departments and um, the use of different skill sets that we've kind of honed in our like separate majors and just like combining those it's like just a great opportunity to make new things and learn new things so it's cool do do you do much collaboration across uh across depart or across the disciplines or anything like that um i have uh (laughs) there's like i don't know it's definitely good to know different people in different majors and different apartments just because it would make your work better knowing that you can expand the areas you don't know about personally like for my film Cody helped me with the cinematography and I helped the cinematography of someone in animation with their film and all this interweaving just makes better artwork and and for 
for you, Trevin, Joey is actually a, a pretty ridiculous multidisciplinary artist. He does uh, handmade books. Uh, he'll write the whole narrative uh, or, or a series of short stories or poems within the book. And then you also do some photography, correct? Um, yeah. Wow. So he's kind of all over the place in the best way possible. In the best way. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of a general question, and maybe it's too broad for this podcast, but what made each of you choose animation for this? Like, was it... Or, or live action live for Live action, those. yeah. 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 What, what, what made you choose the medium that you're, you um, created in for this... Uh, I mean, I can start. Uh, I just, I think live action or like digital filmmaking was just the best way to retell these stories or the stories that actually happen or are made up in my head. And that's just the most accurate way I can present them to the audience. And I've, I've tried to do it in other forms, but filmmaking has been the most relatable because Porterhouse actually started as what a poem or a short story yeah, yeah. which I don't think it was a, as effective as it's just good to cross over at times and see what works best sure so I don't I don't only do filmmaking because I feel like it that's a certain way or whatever I, I try a lot of different areas and see what the idea fits best in but for this, for Porterhouse, you feel it's most effective in the oh, film yeah. version? Yeah, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to try it as a film. Sure. Um, I actually came to KCA with intent to be a painting major um, and then took an experimental sound class my freshman year and just uh, kind of was opened up to these um, new mediums that I hadn't been exposed to in high school. And so what I really fell in love with about animation was just its possibility... Um, for motion and mark making and motion, um, which is why I'm like more of an experimental animator. I don't have as much interest in narrative, um, just kind of that pure form of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, uh, I grew up with doing illustrations and uh, design work. And, uh, I mean, I was always fascinated with film, but uh, it wasn't until I got to KCI that uh, I made like this. Uh, this popcorn box, but uh, it's, it's like a huge, like ten foot uh, little theater. Crazy. Yeah, he he said he, he <laughs> made it sound that. like oh, I made a popcorn box. No, he made like a ten foot tall yeah. popcorn box that inside was a was theater. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> I just sat in there for hours. I almost yeah, forgot. <laughs> and within it, I made like the top top five like grossing movies of all time, and. Um, and for me, just like sitting, it's like a, you could probably fit like maybe like 15 people in there, but it was like designed to be like a, uh, maybe a couple things, like a little group of friends. But um, for me, it just created like a, I kind of realized right then that I could create a, an experience for people that mm-hmm. I couldn't, couldn't do with like a, simply a drawing. So uh, I guess like there, I kind of wanted to explore film uh, like it's an art form so sure. that's kind of where I started mm-hmm. kind of weird I was actually going to talk about that too how like film and animation my film it uses live action and use photography so it's kind of a collage of filmmaking and animation but uh, what I love about time based video and live action is just this it's one of the few ways you can really just like sit a person down and be, explain an idea or a concept. Like Cody was saying, like you can present a person with a painting and they can observe it however they wish from whatever angle. But but to have a film sort of be screened in a theater, it's a very like understood method of viewing and experiencing a work of art. And I've been devouring films <laughs> since I was a kid, and I just want to keep making films that I feel are true to me and true to the artistic spirit of the medium. So it wasn't just the Iron Giant? It was a little of the Iron Giant and a lot of <laughs> Sesame Street pinball animations. Okay. A lot of 60s and 70s experimental oddballs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. 
So, so the the song one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Why 11, do you think 12. I've been trying to get yeah. Nilla Submarine in case of the screening room? I know. So. Which is finally happening. I know. June seventh. Come see. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you all for for showing up and sharing about your films. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it, and I'm really excited for uh, a sort of larger swath of the the public to experience them at the showcase at Alamo on Thursday night. So, anyway, yeah. Woo. Thanks a lot, guys. great showcase of local talent young emerging talent in our city yep. and uh, we'll be back next week uh, with somebody else yeah adios